Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. They say that it is the oldest proverb in the English language. And in fact, that it's a proverb that exists in cultures and languages around the world. It has some variation of it. And the proverb is this. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. (laughs) You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. It's that timeless proverb that speaks of how you and I are not able to help somebody who refuses to be helped. You can bring that horse to water, but you can't hold its head down and force it into its mouth. It's just, it's just not going to work that way. And we know it. We see this in so many different ways, don't we? Whether we're talking about a world and nations and leaders who seem hell-bent, pardon the phrase, but I think it's appropriate, on destroying the world. Whether we're talking about in our relationships. Whether we're even talking about our own human wills. You can't help those who won't help themselves. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Parents, grandparents of wayward kids know this all too well. Friends of folks who are dealing with addiction know this as well. And every single one of us know it when it comes to addressing the own stubborn sins in our lives, things that we try to cling on to all too tightly. And what do you do? How do you respond when you encounter this kind of stubbornness? Well, I think there's some different ways that we can respond and that people do respond. First of all, there's the the response of resentment and anger. Why won't you do what I want you to do? (laughs) On the flip side, maybe after spending some time with that anger and resentment, you just lapse into indifference and numbness and say, fine, forget it. it, it doesn't matter. Or then there's the third response, which is uh, that great German word, schadenfreude. You ever heard of schadenfreude? Literally means pleasure at harm. Or as Milhouse put it in The Simpsons, ha-ha! <laughs> the response to say, all right, that's what you want. Too bad for you. There's all of these different ways that we can respond to in our relationships and to the world that seems to be so difficult and stubborn. But Jesus, who knows the stubborn human heart better than anyone, who realizes how stiff-necked humanity truly is, Jesus shows us a better way. It's the way of lament. And what is lament? Lament, you might put it this way, lament is the language of Lent. It's prayers for the meanwhile. In this present fallen age. It's not accusations against God. It's not merely complaining or venting to him, but it's appealing to God. Knowing God's wishes and the realities of our world, we hold them together in these cries of lament. It's the prayer of exiles for all of us who live east of Eden. And that's part of what makes this prayer and this plea from our Lord Jesus in today's gospel, it's, it's part of what makes it so poignant. So we hear Jesus as he's looking out over Jerusalem and taking into account the response of those whom he came to save, to bring the glad good news. And what does Jesus want? What does he want more than anything else? 
He says that he wants to be like that mother bird, like the hen that would gather together the chicks. That's what he wants more than anything else, to gather them in, to make them whole. This is the language of the Old Testament, of God speaking and wanting to bring in the exiles and saying, yes, you have been distant for far too long. Now, what do I want to do? I want to gather you back together to myself and to your home so that I can forgive your sins, that I can wash you and make you whole. That's what Jesus wants. What does Jerusalem want? What do all those people want whom he came to save? Anything but that, right? Jesus wants to gather them in. They want to remain scattered. Jesus wants to wash them. They want to stay dirty. Jesus wants to forgive their sins and all of their recalcitrance and all of their stubborn hearts. It leads them to this tragic result that their city is forsaken. In fact, Jesus even used this ironic play on words here. The same word for forgiveness, the same Greek word, can be otherwise translated as released, to release someone's sins. Jesus says that now, because they refuse that release, that forgiveness of Jesus, now they are released. He uses the same word there. So like a, a professional athlete who demands a trade, demands to be released from their team, it's like Jesus saying, okay, this is what you wanted? You didn't want to be gathered in? You didn't want these promises fulfilled? Now I'm going to give you what you want. If you refuse my help. And see, think of all the different ways that Jesus could have responded in that moment. To that opposition and to the, the wayward world. He could have responded with anger and resentment. Kind of guilt tripping them all the way down. Don't you understand? I'm the Messiah. I came to save you. Hello, McFly. Back to the future hadn't come out yet, actually. He could have responded with cold indifference, numbness, and just ignoring them. Or he could have responded with that schadenfreude, just dunk on top of all of his opponents and say, look, look what's going to happen to you now. But instead, how does he respond? With lament. Oh, Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. And I want you to hear in these words from our King Jesus, echoes from an earlier king. Maybe you remember this story from the Old Testament. The story of King David, who had a rebellious, stubborn son by the name of Absalom. And Absalom was one whom King David wanted desperately to gather in. But Absalom was hell-bent on going his own way, on rebelling against the king and against God's kingdom, until finally it led to his tragic death. What does David do? What does he say? He says, Oh, Absalom. Oh, Absalom. And those two names, Absalom, Absalom, and Yerushalom, have that same root of shalom, peace, the very thing that they would not pursue. And I find it interesting that David, in his lament, goes on to say, Oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom, would that I could have died in your place. See, in this lament of our Lord Jesus, it's already an anticipation of what he will, in fact, do. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I will die in your place. In lifting up these laments to the Father, Jesus is grafting his grief 
unto God's greater story. That's what lament does. It doesn't allow grief to be in vain or for nothing, but it grafts grief onto God's greater story. You might think of it like this. I read about a guy by the name of Doug Dietz, and Doug Dietz had an impossible job. He worked for General Electric, and his job as a designer and engineer was to make an MRI machine that kids could use. Now, I've never had an MRI myself, some of you have, but I gather just reading about it that it's like the worst thing in the world, the worst kind of test that you have to have. That if you have any claustrophobia at all, it's like, just take me now, Lord. So he has to make this MRI machine, and his first pass at it, he makes it as efficient as it could possibly be. He's so proud of how good his MRI machine is, and he goes to see as it first gets used by kids. And they look at this coffin that they're about to go into, and what do they do? They start screaming, no, no, no. In fact, with his first pass at the MRI machine, 80% of kids had to be sedated before they could use it. It was that scary. But then he gets an idea. And he totally revamps and remakes the MRI machine into all kinds of different decorations. There would be themes with it. There would be the jungle adventure MRI machine, and you had to pretend like you were getting into a canoe, and if the canoe tipped all, it over at all, the water was going to get into it, and so kids would gladly go into, into their canoe of the MRI machine and just stay perfectly still. There was another one where it was the, a spaceship, and you're getting into the spaceship, and here we go, we're ready to take off uh, out to the outer space, just everybody hold on tight, here we go. Another one was the cable car, and it would be like, okay, you hear all those loud noises? It's just like when you're on the cable car in San Francisco. Don't freak out when you hear it. And, and kids would do it over and over and over again. And why was it? Because he realized that he needed to meet their place of pain and make it part of a larger story. Kids could put up with it or even enjoy it, embrace it, when they saw that moment of sorrow as part of a bigger story. This is what lament does for you and me. Lament is like us hopping into the Pirate Island MRI machine, see, and turning that point of pain into something more. When we lift up our laments to the Lord, we graft our griefs onto his greater story. We graft our griefs onto his greater story. And I'm convinced that this is why we go into all those other responses to the wayward world and to our wayward selves, to those friends who turn away and to, to nations that when we act with indifference or with anger, or even with the schadenfreude and the pleasure at another's harm, all of those are responses if we think that ultimately this pain and this grief and this sorrow is for nothing. When there is no larger story, when it all is in vain, then how can we but respond with anger or with indifference or even with a kind of perverse pleasure? Those are all responses that are really defense mechanisms. But instead, in Christ Jesus, that pit of despair is transformed into a pathway of praise. Now, in Christ Jesus, we are able to cope with these hardships and with these griefs 
because we know that he hears us crucially that he hears us and that all of these laments that we lift up to the lord that they don't fall on deaf ears i was reading uh, an article from the theologian russell moore who has adopted a couple of boys from romania and russell moore recounts this terrifying scene of when he first went to the romanian orphanage to find his boys and when he went into the orphanage, he and his wife, when they went in there, it was just this room of stench and squalor. He couldn't believe that any human being could possibly live in these conditions, much less small children. But he said that, that wasn't the most terrifying part of the orphanage. No, the most terrifying part when he and his wife went into that orphanage was the fact that it was totally and utterly silent. And why was it silent? It's because all these children, babies, had already learned that nobody would hear their cries. Kids pick up on these things quickly. And if all of your cries are in vain, that there's no one there to pick you up, to care for you, to hear you, you just quit. You and I have a living Lord who has adopted us into his family and who says, who tenderly invites us to believe that as our true father, we can cry out to him because he knows our griefs. He shares our pain. He listens to our laments. His ears are attuned to our cries, it says in the Psalms. He is the suffering servant, the one who has come to bear our burdens on himself, to share our sorrows, to make sure that all of your cries are not lost. And these, this language of lament, it is a language of Lent. It's a temporary word. Because there is a day coming when our Lord Jesus will return. And when he will transform all of these cries of grief and sorrow into cries of praise when you and I will have our lowly bodies to be transformed like unto his glorious body. That's what we cling to. That's the, the hope and the promise that you and I have. But until that day, we join together as the body of Christ. For when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer together. When we lift up these laments to our Lord, we share his broken heart for this wayward world. And we graft our griefs onto his greater story. And we can be confident that that story has a happy ending. Lament is the language of, lament, of Lent. But take heart. Easter is coming. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand to sing the offertory.